Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole biblical story about God and Israel. He is the Messiah from the line of David. Matthew shows us that Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel. Matthew tells us Jesus is going to bring God's blessing to all the nations, just like Moses did. Jesus' kingdom is about God's rescue operation for the whole world. It's an upside-down kingdom where there are no privileged members. Everyone is invited. Everyone is called to turn, to repent, to follow Jesus, and to join his family. Matthew is about the people who are unimportant, the nobodies, the irreligious. These are the people who are transformed by their willingness to trust, to have faith in Jesus Christ. Well, it's good to be here together this morning. Uh, if you're newer with us, my name is Brian, one of the pastors here. Uh, and so greetings both to you in here, but also to our friends over in the East Auditorium. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 13, uh, where we are going to find today a, a series of teachings from Jesus, but they're all communicated in the form of something called parables. And a parable, if you're unfamiliar, uh, the definition simply is a comparison between two subjects for a purpose of teaching. The word literally means a throwing together. It throws together two ideas to expose maybe a similarity, perhaps a contrast, or maybe some type of surprise, all for the sake of making or teaching a point. And personally, I love these kind of teachings. I love things that kind of help make it stick, you know, a clever pun or an analogy or an illustration that just uh, helps uh, otherwise a fact just kind of come to life. And uh, my brother actually the other day, he texted me, you could say a modern day parable, it was just kind of a play on words that I thought was kind of funny. Actually, texted me about a year ago following um, the NBA uh, finals of last year. Uh, and whether you followed it or not, it was the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Golden State Wars, just as it is right now. And the Cleveland Cavaliers, uh, led by LeBron James, came uh, from a 3-1 deficit to win the finals uh, against uh, Steph Curry and the Golden Gate Warriors. And so uh, you've got Steph Curry and LeBron James. Those names are important. Uh, and so this is what my brother saw in the grocery store. I thought that was pretty clever. So, uh, and so if you're following it, they are again, Cleveland's a 3-1 deficit, and so we need some LeBron powder. I, my whole family's from Cleveland, so if you don't know that. So we need some LeBron powder here to, to make some magic happen over the next few days. So the next, uh, what we're going to spend with our time is not looking at that, but we're going to look at some creative uh, illustrations and some, or you could say parables, uh, in Matthew 13, where we come uh, in our, we've been working through the book of Matthew for several months now, and today we're really right in the middle of the book. Matthew chapter 13, um, it really, it, as one commentator said, is the, um, the chapter that holds or is the hinge between the first in the second half of Matthew. Uh, because really what we're seeing in chapter 13 is a, you could say, a commentary of what we've seen in the last 12 chapters. And so if, uh, just to get you up to speed, you've got Jesus who 
comes as God in the flesh on the scene that we celebrate each Christmas as a baby in a manger, uh, grows up, begins his earthly ministry of teaching and preaching and healing and really living out and teaching the kingdom of heaven, his kingdom, his ways in the midst of kind of the ways of the world. And what you have in uh, chapters you know, 9, 10, and 11 are really you're getting people's responses to who this Jesus is. And it's a mixed response. We see some are enthusiastically accepting of who Jesus is and claims to be, and they receive him wholeheartedly. Uh, on the inverse, you have people who um, obstinately are, are opposed and, and don't buy in at all. Uh, we see this a lot with the religious leaders of the day, uh, just an outright rejection. But then even in the midst of those, you have, those are kind of on the fence. They're really not sure yet what to do with Jesus. Uh, this includes his own family members. Even John the Baptist, who ushered in his ministry in chapter 11, we see we, a few weeks ago, he's, he's doubting, is Jesus really the Messiah? And so these parables uh, are really, again, a commentary to the varied responses that these folks of that time were having to Jesus. And now for us, you know, 2,000 years later, it's an opportunity for us. You could say to, to look into the mirror of the parables, to get a reflection back, to discern our own response. What is our response to who this Jesus is and what is it going to mean for the rest of our life and frankly, for the rest of eternity? And so that is what these parables call us to respond to. And just kind of taking a step back, you might ask, why did Jesus even choose to speak in parables? Why didn't he just speak plainly and directly as to what he was trying to say. And he does do that plenty in Matthew. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, he's pretty direct there. Uh, but the reason he speaks in parables, in fact, his own disciples asked him this question. So if you look with me, kind of in the middle of the chapter, verse 10, uh, Jesus' disciples, they ask him, why do you speak to the people in parables? And so Jesus answers them. He says, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what they have, will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. Now, at first blush look and listen to that, you might be thinking, whoa, is... Is Jesus like intentionally trying to be confusing? Like is Jesus intentionally trying to speak in these parables to prevent people from hearing and truly understanding his message? Because that's kind of what it looks like. But that is not the case. What Jesus is doing is simply, he is stating the natural reality of the way things are. Uh, that, for example, to those like his disciples who are present there, uh, who are willing and they're open and they're interested in following what Jesus has for them, well, then they will naturally, with their openness, receive more and more of what Jesus has. But on the inverse, to those who really have a resistant rejection of what Jesus has, they will naturally just reject him and move further and further away from the things of Jesus. And so, really, Jesus is just stating the natural reality and the natural process that's going to take place based on our response to him. Either an enthusiastic acceptance, which will open us up to more and more, or again, a resistance rejection, a resistant rejection, where naturally that's going to lead to less and less of what uh, Jesus has for us in our lives. We will resist it. And this is not new to Jesus' words. In fact, he points out that this reality was prophesied about long before Jesus arrived on the earth, hundreds of years prior uh, in the prophet Isaiah. So picking up in verse 14, it says this, in them, and he's talking about people, in people is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. 
You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, turn to him, and I would heal them. That's Jesus' desire. His desire is that people, all people, it says, would come to him, and they would be healed, and they would be saved. And he goes on, but blessed are you, speaking to his disciples, blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people, uh, talking about the past, longed to see what you see, but they did not get to see it. And to hear what you hear, but they did not get to hear it. And so we, today, who are present, listening and, and looking at the God's word, we, in contrast to the majority of history, we are blessed. We are blessed to be given the opportunity to respond to who Jesus is and his ways. And so now the question then in that response to the question to chapter 13 that we're going to discover is, how will you respond? How will you respond to who Jesus is and his ways? Will it be a, a pursuing and enthusiastic acceptance of more and more? Or will you find in your life that you've had a resistant rejection that's leading to less and less? And so hang with me as we look through these uh, parables. There are seven parables. I thought looking at this text, maybe we'd just choose a couple. Uh, but as I studied, there is an arc to uh, the whole narrative of the seven parables that really come together to communicate what Jesus is trying to communicate. So we will do that and be out by lunch, I promise. And along with that, uh, because the call is to respond uh, at the end of the message, rather than you know, tie up with a bow the ending of the sermon, really we're just gonna leave it uh, as Jesus calls us to in your hands to respond to his parable. So we'll have some time for that as well. So let's uh, jump in and buckle up. Chapter 13, starting in verse one, uh, it says this. This is how the setting got uh, going for Jesus' teaching. He says, that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such a large crowd gathered around him that he got into the boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables. So Jesus is in the boat, he's speaking to the crowds and he starts with his first parable. He says, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. And still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times that which was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. And from there, Jesus goes on to explain how this parable is a reflection of how we respond to him. And so jump down to verse 18, where he gives that explanation. Jesus says, Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away that which was sown in the heart. This is the seed sown along the path. 
And so this, this heart really reflects a hard heart or a hard path. And for me, I've always visualized this particular uh, metaphor, this illustration as kind of a golf cart path. Like if you've ever just kind of a golf, like it's a concrete path where, um, you know, maybe if you're a golfer, you, you hit a shot and, you know, it's, oh, it's maybe a little off, you know, on the side. You think, oh, it'll be in that first cut of rough. It'll be all right. But then you see this where it bounces sky high because it hits the car path and flies into the woods. And then even if you find it without getting poison ivy, you know, the ball's got this big like scuff chunk taken out of it. So you can't putt with it. It's, worth, it's a bad day. And so that's the way I think of it. Maybe you think of it differently, but um, that is the question. Is your heart hard like, like a concrete path where um, when the word of God hits the surface, it just bounces off and it makes it easy to be snatched away because either maybe your heart is just unwilling, maybe too proud, maybe too stubborn to let the word of the Lord get past even the surface. Or maybe you can relate to the rocky ground where Jesus says on verse 20, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no roots, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. So in other words, maybe, maybe the seed has started to get planted. You're here physically, uh, but you haven't been intentional to continue to water your roots uh, in the things of God. You know, water and deepen your roots through um, getting into his word and to prayer and engagement uh, in his church. And so uh, when life then does happen, you fall away, you wither away because you have no roots. Or maybe... I think we can all relate to the next uh, situation in verse 22, uh, very similar, that it says, Jesus says that the seed among the thorns, this refers to someone who hears the word, but then there's the worries of this life. The worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. And so Jesus is saying, this is where the world's priorities, the world's values creep in, uh, whether it's through our schedules or possibilities or opportunities or priorities. And it's the kingdoms, the, the things of this world that crowd out, or he says, choke out the word of God in our lives. And I'll be honest, I would say these two landing spots for the seed is what I see most in the life of our church. Uh, all too often, you know, I'll get excited. I'll see someone, maybe I know from the community or family, then they, they start, you know, coming to church and they're checking out the things of God and the seed has been planted. But within six months or nine months, they, I don't see them anymore. And it's that reality that, you know, they, they were checking it out, but they didn't take the next step to develop their roots through God's word and prayer uh, or getting engaged in the life of the church or, and just other things came in, whether the worries of this life or the values of the kingdoms of this world, the priorities and the schedules just choked it out and they didn't develop roots. And so I would say to you, if, that's, if you're new or newer to the life of the church, stick with it, be patient, don't just six months and burn out. You've got to take those next steps um, to get engaged in what God has provided us in the church. And you've heard us say it, if you've been around even a short time, we do this by growing and serving together. That's where, that's where doing church life together really takes place. It's a place where you can build some relationships with some other people that will build your most important relationship with the Lord. And then even outside of the context of the church, just privately, you know, how are you giving things over to God in prayer, trusting him with the stuff of life rather than trusting in things of this world and, and getting into his word that continues to deepen your roots into who he is? Because it's there. It's in these things that God has provided in his church and in his word and in prayer 
that we become, and you could say till, the soil of the fourth illustration that Jesus gives us, verse 23. It's there that the seed falls, it says, on good soil. And this refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding 160 or 30 times that which was sown. And so clearly, this is the goal. This is the goal. This is what uh, that we're, we're trying to achieve as far as where we are planted, a life rooted in God's kingdom and good soil that will produce a crop, yielding 30, 60, or 100 times that which was sown. And then what we're going to see in the remaining parables is what then does that look like? So you start here. This is our initial response to who Jesus is and his ways. And now the next six parables really reveal what then that looks like and how this plays out in our life and eternally. So with that, let's look at the next parable, the parable of the weeds. Verse 24. It says, Jesus told them another parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds, they also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first, collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Then from there, jump down to verse 37, where Jesus explains this parable, the parable of the weeds. He says, the one who sowed the good seed, this is the son of man, speaking to himself, Jesus. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of his kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. All right, so just for clarity and at the risk of re-saying what Jesus already explained, we see that Jesus is the sower of the good seed while the enemy, Satan, is the sower of weeds or evil into this world. And thus, both coexist together. And Jesus says that if you're a follower of him, in, in another passage in John 17, he says, you are gonna be in this world. You're gonna be coexisting with evil, but remember, you are not of this world. You might be in this world, but you are not of it. You are of my kingdom. And you are here to, as he says in other passages, to be salt, uh, light, to, for people to get a taste of you and to experience the kingdom, even in the midst of evil that's all around us in our world, so that he can produce in you and through you, to mix parables a bit, 30, 60, or 100-fold that which was sown. And so that is the reality of the world we live in, that even uh, as we live in the kingdom of God, that all evil doesn't dissipate to influence in our lives, that, that still coexists, and it will be at the end of time when God will sort this out on final judgment, that one will go to eternity with him, 
and the other, really just continuing the trajectory of what they've already chosen here on earth. They've chosen to reject Jesus, and thus that then continues eternally in hell, separated from him. Okay? And so that kind of paints the reality of, like, hey, we're part of the kingdom. There's still going to be evil present even with the good that he's trying to do in and through us uh, here in this world. And then from there, in the next two parables, Jesus goes on to then share a little bit more, like, what does this now look like? How does the kingdom of heaven play out even in the midst of the weeds and the evil in our world? Like, what's it going to look like? How's it going to play out? And the next two parables give us that picture. It's the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast. Picking up in verse 31. It says, Jesus told them another parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Now, to give you a better visual of the contrast uh, that Jesus was painting, you can see on the screen that there is uh, a mustard seed or several on, on the tip of a finger, and then obviously the contrast of what that then becomes uh, eventually. So this, this imagery that Jesus is painting, really, it's, it's nothing new. It speaks to how God has always chosen to work, that from the beginning of creation to this day, that our God, in his obviously infinite power, consistently and constantly chooses to put on display his great power, his infinite power in finite origins, in small, humble, really almost seemingly insignificant beginnings. And we see this all throughout history. If you're familiar maybe with some of these stories in the Bible, uh, in Genesis chapter 12, the first book of the Bible, he tells uh, one man, a man by the name of Abraham, that uh, his people will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And now, fast forward thousands of years, everyone on the planet who has ever been ethnically Jewish can tie their roots back to that one man, to Abraham. That promise that God made through one man did great things. Or in uh, Judges, uh, if you're familiar with the story, there's a story where Gideon uh, has 32,000 men, uh, the good guys, the Israelites, they have 32,000 Israelites armed and ready to take the Midianites. And God says to Gideon, you have too many men. You have too many men, because if you win with all of these men, he says, Israel will become boastful and say, our own power delivered us. So over the course of several interesting conversations, God actually whittles their army down to a mere 300 men. And the 300 men take victory over, Judges 7.12 says, a, a group that the men who are as numerous as locusts and their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And so again, God is displaying his power by intentionally taking it through a small uh, number of men. Or my favorite of all time, I think, is, is the story of Joshua. And uh, I didn't grow up in church, but I bet if you did, you heard the story of, you know, marching around the city. And Jericho is a so story where uh, God has promised them this land that they're going to have. And Jericho is the first city they come to, and it's their first battle. And so the battle plans come together. And the plan is for them to march around the city once a day for six days, and then on the seventh day, march for a total of seven times, and then blow some trumpets. I mean, I haven't sat in many, like, military strategic planning meetings, but I'm guessing that would have been an interesting one. Could you, you know, the generals gather together, and it's like, okay, guys, we're going to take Jericho, uh, blue sky meeting, any ideas as to maybe would be the best approach to, to take the city? Okay, okay. Um, march seven times, blow the trumpet, okay. 
Hey, no bad ideas. Um, let's just park that one. And uh, any, anything else for the good of the order. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. But that's who our God is. He takes small, seemingly insignificant, almost nonsensical things and uses those things to display what only could be of God, to, for God to do what only God can do in those settings. And, and you take this all the way through the Old Testament, all the way up to the very arrival of God in the flesh. Jesus. What do we celebrate every Christmas? How did the God of the universe decide to show himself upon the scene? As a helpless baby, born in a barn, born in a manger. And now he grows up and he's teaching us what this kingdom will continue to look like. And he says that through you and me, through everyday people, though as small as a mustard seed we might feel, that God is gonna choose to display his infinite power in finite, everyday, seemingly insignificant people like you and me. And so maybe that's exactly how you feel. Maybe you feel in your setting in life pretty small, pretty insignificant, like what am I gonna do? I'm the smallest of seeds. Uh, maybe for you, you know, it's June and you're back from, you know, for summer break or college student. You're like, man, I'm only here two months. What difference could I possibly make? Uh, or maybe in your place of work, you know, I'm, I'm the low man or the low woman on the totem pole. I'm, I'm the no man on the totem pole. I don't even exist in my setting, it feels like. Or, you know, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. Or I'm just retired. Perfect. Perfect. Because that is what, God, in God's economy, God says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Though the smallest of all seeds, that is where he wants to produce in you. And where Paul says that in your weakness, that's where my strength can shine. He says he wants to produce in you one of the largest garden plants that becomes a tree 30, 60, 100 fold. That which was planted. Jesus, he continues to, to reiterate the reality of what he wants to do through small things. In verse 33, in another parable, the parable of the yeast, follow with me, he says, another parable, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast, uh, which is also very small and tiny, that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. And so just like a little bit of yeast can infiltrate 60 pounds of flour to make dozens upon dozens of loaves of bread, so the kingdom of God is infiltrating wherever you are planted. He is looking to infiltrate your home, your neighborhood, our community, our country, the world. And that is what God has done for the history of the church that he can produce in us and through us, not in our own strength, but by his power, that we are blessed in order to be a blessing, producing 30, 60, or a hundredfold that which was planted in us. And so that's how God's kingdom comes. It comes through everyday people like you and me where God's power is on display. Not ours, but through us, okay? And so when it comes to the way that God works and the way the kingdom of heaven is to be displayed here on earth, Jesus uh, follows up the, these last two out of the three parables really asking you the question, how much does this mean to you? Like, as you hear this and as you experience what the kingdom of heaven is about, how valuable is this to you? And so the next two parables beg that question of us. Jesus says, verse 44, he says, the kingdom of heaven, it's like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went out and sold all that he had and he bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. 
When he found it, or when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. And so these two parables, they really reveal a couple of things. One is, first off, how it is that we come to find the kingdom of heaven, and then regardless of how we come to find it, how it then should change everything. It should turn upside down our understanding of what we value, of what's important, of what we prioritize. Uh, and it's, it's interesting, it's, you know, it, it's true, because some people, you know, like, it's like the first man, they just kinda, some people just almost stumble across the kingdom of heaven in the way, you know, it's like they weren't really looking for anything, but when they stumble across uh, Jesus and his way for their life and eternity, it's like, wow, this, this is everything. And, they, and they, they put everything else aside and they give everything to him. Uh, on the inverse, though, there's also those who, and we've known these people, maybe you've been this person who, you know, they're always on the search. They're always hunting for, you know, what is, you know, the meaning of my existence on the planet? You know, why am I here? What is the purpose? And they, you know, they look into various philosophies or religions or goals that this world paints out or um, pleasures of this life, whatever the case may be. And eventually, like the merchant, realize that they have found in Jesus the pearl of all pearls, that they cast away all these other pearls for the only pearl um, that, that transcends them all. And so, we, we, again, we find the kingdom of, that, of God that way. Maybe we kind of accidentally stumble across it or we've been on the hunt and we find it. Either way, when we find Jesus' way, we discover that Jesus is the Son of God, the treasure that he came and lived and died for our forgiveness of sin to give us the gift of a new life both here on earth and for all of eternity, yes, even amidst the weeds and the evil and the thorns and all the earthly treasures of this life. Nothing, uh, nothing comes in comparison. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, he says, and he had a lot of achievements. He had done a lot of great stuff. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, kind of a, uh, a, quite an accomplishment. He says all of that is rubbish. It's garbage. It's nothing compared to, he says, the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, because he is plenty, he is everything, and he is always enough. He's enough. And so that's the value of the kingdom of heaven. And so how do we respond compared to the values, the other treasures, the other pearls of this world? And in Jesus' final parable, he really comes to a head, this full arc of, uh, you know, the concluding reality of, okay, how now will you respond to this and the implications of your response. And so one more, the parable of the net. Verse 47. It says, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This, and he goes on to explain it, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so as we look at the storyline of all seven of these parables, if the first parable is all about how our soil of our hearts is, how we respond to Jesus today, well, then the last parable faces us with the very uh, real reality that how we respond to Jesus today will affect and have the implications of how Jesus will respond to us on that final day. Whether from our death or Jesus' return on that final judgment, how we respond to Jesus today has implications for how we will be responded to 
by him. And so, um, quote here, this one was helpful to me. St. Hilary of the fourth century in his commentary on Matthew, he explains this parable uh, that the Lord rightly compared his preaching with a net. Coming into the world without condemning the world, he gathered those who were dwelling within it in a matter of a net. Tossed into the sea, that net is hauled up from the bottom, encircling every creature in that element. It draws out all those things that is netted, and it lifts us out of the world and into the light of the true sun. With the choice of righteous honor and the rejection of evil, it brings to light the scrutiny of the judgment to come. So again, whether the four soils, you know, the weeds and the wheat, or the good fish from the bad fish, how we respond to Jesus' kingdom now echoes into all of eternity. And so Jesus wraps up all his teaching with really the all-important question of any teaching in any learning setting, verse 51. He says to his disciples, have you understood all these things? Jesus asks, to which they reply, yes. And so, have you understood all of these things? Have you understood that the parables are a reflection of your response to him? And now, more practically, an opportunity for each of us to more clearly respond to who Jesus is and his ways this day that will be echoed in your entire life and in your entire eternity. And so as I alluded to at the beginning, rather than you know, tie a bow on this as the preaching pastor with the conclusion of the message, uh, really it's a, a choose your own adventure kind of story. It's how will you respond to Jesus' kingdom? You are the conclusion to this by answering the question, have you understood all these things? And so to help you with that response, um, there's gonna be a few prayer prompts on the screen um, where you can decide and discern. Is this enthusiastic acceptance where I'm going to get more and more or am I living in resistant rejection which just leads to less and less? And so we'll move through this uh, over the next couple of minutes and um, I'll just give you an opportunity to respond right there in your seat. Maybe for you, depending on how you process, it might be best to just you know, write it on the back of your program, your responses. Uh, maybe punch it in your phone or just if you prefer just to sit there quietly in your heart and your head. Uh, to reflect and to pray. We'll allow that as well, of course. So let me pray for us in this, and then uh, we'll leave it to you to uh, discern with God. Father, we thank you for the treasure of your kingdom that we are um, fortunate enough throughout all of history to be exposed to, that we have the opportunity to enthusiastically respond. And so may we have ears to hear and eyes that are open and hearts that understand what it is you have for us. God, for those who are here today who, um, you know, many of us will be deepening our understanding of your kingdom and your ways, but there's those who are here today who may have never taken that step to accept your kingdom, to accept the soil that you want to plant them in for your ways versus living life their own way and the world's way. And so may this be that day where they know without a shadow of a doubt that they have received your ways, your forgiveness um, to follow you as Lord, that they would on that day not be a weed, not be a bad fish, that they would live this life in all of eternity as wheat, as a good fish to use your parables, God. Um, and right now, lives buried in your rich soil for what you have for them. Uh, would you lead us each respectively in Jesus' name?
And so is the soil of your life fertile for God's word? Or is evil, sin, temptation, troubles, worries of this life, or lack of commitment threatening to snatch or choke out God in your life? Ask God to bring health to the soil of your life. Though your life may feel small, a mustard seed or yeast, God looks to work in and through you for his kingdom. Ask God to reveal where he wants to work through you. Jesus' kingdom is of ultimate value. You have discovered the hidden treasure, the greatest pearl among pearls. Ask God to show you one way you can live out the value of Jesus' kingdom over the values of this world. <laughs>